Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and my co-host joining me, as per usual, for the past couple of weeks and for the foreseeable future, Mr. Ben Burgess. Ben, how you doing? Ah, uh, I'm pretty good. Quarantine is getting old, but otherwise, I'm pretty good. I've seen multiple articles out lately about quarantine fatigue. People are feeling, people are feeling uh, ready to, to get out and, and see the world and risk infection. It seems to be the only plan for this uh, Trump administration. Uh, I guess a certain form of like authoritarian Malthusianism has has won the day. We'll talk much more about that here in just a moment. But the third voice in the mic today is Brianna Last. Brianna is with Philly DSA, where she co-chairs the education committee. She's on the steering committee there. She's also a graduate student in clinical psychology at Penn. Brianna, thanks for coming on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. And just a small correction on that. I'm the chair of political education, not the co-chair. Oh, chair. Boss, <laughs> big boss of the education committee, bossing people around, forcing them to learn about Marx against their will. Honestly. Uh, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> you got to flex, you know? Do what I can. Do what I can. So, so how are you holding up? Well, what's, what's life like in Philly in quarantine 2020? <laughs> uh, things are okay. Yeah, I'm making the most of it. Um, I'm doing teletherapy with my clients. Um, so that's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. What's that like, actually? You see that plastered all over your advertisements, or maybe like that's a tell. Maybe I'm telling on myself that my like <laughs> cookies and algorithms go in that direction. But like, you know, how it is if you just like whisper like the word couch, like in your basement at 3 a.m., like you wake up the next morning and all of your Facebook advertisements are about like, home furnishings. It's fucking creepy. But anyway, I've seen, I've seen a lot about, um, you know, like, uh, at home therapy over like zoom or whatever. And it's becoming more, it's becoming more accessible, which is always a good thing. Right. But accessible for people who as always have money, but what's your experience as a, as a, as a clinician with that kind of uh, setup? Yeah, it's a good question. Thankfully, you know, I work at a free clinic in the city. And so all of my clients are you know, pretty working poor. A lot of them are unemployed. And so this is the only opportunity that they have to be able to access mental health services. And the fact that everything has gone online has been really helpful for a lot of them who ordinarily have really busy lives. So in many ways, I think it has increased access. uh, But the actual experience is, you know, it's not ideal. It's not like being in person with someone and being able to really communicate listening in the same way. Mm-hmm. So there are trade-offs like gives and takes with everything, you know, that good, good, strong dialectical way of approaching the world. Ben, you're <laughs> a, you're, you're a professor at um, Georgia state. I mean, are, how are you think, how are you thinking about the impacts, like the social kind of technological, you know, workplace labor oriented impacts of like the quarantine? Like, are you guys going to be forced to like put all of your like proprietary intellectual labor into like these mass online class platforms that it will then be, you know, commodified and stolen from you by the administration. Like how, how are you guys grappling with this? Like, uh, the lead up? I'm well, everything it. is online at least, at least through the summer. Uh, it's a little unclear what's, what's going on in the fall. I hope that the university system could, you know, Georgia continues to hold out uh, since actually the governor, Brian Kemp has uh, has reopened most things at this point. 
which by the way, a fun fact that I just learned about this yesterday, for a while it was going around that, hey, you know, Georgia, you know, opened up most of what had been locked down and uh, and cases have actually been steadily declining. And then it turned out that Georgia's uh, reporting of the daily case count, they actually, this, this sounds like a joke, but they did it. Uh, they reported the dates out of order, so the so the chart makes it look like there's a steady decline, mm, like uh, like it goes books. like yeah. May second, yeah. then April fifth, then whatever you know. So uh, uh, so so it, it looked like it was on a steady uh, steady decline, which which seems like I don't know. I mean, like that that seems like a step or two beyond you know what I thought they would have done. But yeah, so you mentioned the kind of um, the fuckeration from your uh, your dear governor down there in Georgia who stole an election several months ago. My Democratic governor in Virginia isn't faring much better. Of course, we have a Republican-led uh, Congress in the, in my state. But, you know, I, I checked the Virginia Unemployment Commission website because we're nine weeks in and I've yet to receive pandemic unemployment uh, assistance, which is remarkable. Like it's I'm, I'm blessed in a sense to have a little bit of outside support so that like I'm not starving to death. But, you know, we're nine weeks in and so many people have yet to receive, uh, receive promised help. You know, I haven't received a stimulus check yet. I'm told that it's supposed to be in the mail, but we're nine fucking weeks in. And the only choice that people have to survive is to, is to put themselves back in danger. And it's horrific. But I checked the, the Virginia Unemployment website, uh, commission website. And as Chris Brooks from Labor Notes last week mentioned, a lot of these states are, are putting up these snitching forms. And my state, my my dear brave Commonwealth uh, has a snitching form on the front page of the Virginia Unemployment Commission, where employers are encouraged to report their employees that have either returned to work or have refused work, so that they can be denied benefits. Like that's the world that we're living in right now, and it seems like workers are uh, the the worker working poor, and and workers are under more pressure now than ever. Like, how is that? How is that being reflected in the clients that you have? I know this is kind of like off the cuff, and you've got a lot of like um like professional like ethics that you have to abide by, Brianna. But <laughs> but what's the, what's the kind of your general experience like coming from someone who's like very politically engaged, but also like engaged at like the interpersonal level with these people that you're you're providing services to? Yeah, that's a, also another great question. I think you know, they definitely provide a lens by which I can understand how depoliticized they are in many ways. I mean, I think that's been really interesting is that, uh, not to plug my own self, but I wrote a piece in the beginning of the pandemic uh, in Damage Magazine about uh, my clients' reactions to the pandemic and the way in which a lot of it isn't really registered as a break from normalcy because their normal is just immiseration. <laughs> so that's been really fascinating, the the kind of panic and uh, anxiety that a lot of us are experiencing is because we have somewhere to fall from and they just simply don't. It's been, yeah, they, their lives have been in crisis, you know, for, for a long time. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I think my, now might be as good a time as any to talk about the main topic at hand today. Uh, we're going to be talking about your piece that you wrote recently it was published in a new blog called The Bellows. That piece was titled Wither DSA. <laughs> and Ben and I talked a little bit about it on the B side last week for our patrons. And we've been talking a lot about DSA and the kind of challenges and, and the, you know, the, the situation that the left finds itself like post Bernie right now. And when I when I stumbled upon your piece last week, I thought to myself, my God, like this is the, one of the most like coherent and like 
you can tell you put a lot of effort into this thing, right? And you contextualize things historically. And it honestly was like a really, it was a breath of fresh air, right? Not to gas, I gas up all my, uh, all my <laughs> guests. It's fine. People are used to it now, but, but I was like, I mean, Ben, when you stumbled upon that piece yourself, I sent it your way. Like, didn't it seem like this was like very much in line with the kind of conversations that we've been having here with our guests on the program over the past month. And it's nice to see that these things are cropping up in like in somewhat in, in isolation, not in isolation, of course, but that that a lot of people are, are thinking in the same direction. Yeah, for sure. And it's and I think it's it's worth you know as, as we kind of go into this part of the conversation, talking about in the past, sometimes when when you or I you know have have been critical of some things about DSA, there's there's a good way to do that and a bad way to do it, and and it, it can there's always the danger that it sort of sounds like. You know, you're just kind of some podcast asshole sitting on the sidelines, being like, ah, you're doing everything wrong, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. And and of course, what what I don't want to get lost in there is is that I think that you know DSA, you know, while very while very imperfect, is 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 still a really promising development. You know, that if you're enough of a cranky old person to to remember what things were like before the current iteration of DSA came about. You know, it's a great improvement, and you know, and I've I've been a member since since 2015, and I would encourage people to to join, right? But I think that that key point is the line that I think I quoted the first time we had this conversation from um, our friend Michael Brooks's new show with Anna Kasparian on Jacobin, where I said that you know sometimes people, you know, when you say critical things about the left, people think you know you hear you like as bad mouthing it. When if the thing that you're criticizing is a lack of strategic sense, right, then interpreting that as just bashing it is a little bit like saying that a basketball coach who makes his team do drills is like against the team, <laughs> you know, because right. you know, yeah. he's criticizing the way that they're doing things right now. Yeah, yeah, spot on. I mean, one of the ways I've been framing this for, for a while now on DPS is that like, you know, I, I did the anti-essentialism series three years ago. Uh, it was very compelling for some people. It was anathema, you know, practically to others. Like, you know, uh, it was very polarizing. But one of the things that it's kind of developed sort of somewhat surreptitiously behind the scenes, but it started cohering and congealing into something that was quite tangible uh, several months ago was that I'm concerned that a lot of people who are compelled by the kind of anti-culture warrior position have probably because of the inertia generated by like online communities, right? It, they, they've sort of taken up permanent residency in the basement of the vampire's castle. Right. And that's kind of what, how, how I want to frame our conversation today is I want to encourage people like Ben and I did last week, right. To, to go beyond the criticisms and start thinking about how we can actually build something tangible. You, know, you wait for the other foot to drop with some of these people and it never does. And it's because they're enthralled with the culture war. They've kind of taken up the culture war as their existential other. And when you do that, you're locked in this like tragic, battle that's like you know at the heart of like every fucking shakespeare you know play or every uh you know every every sort of tragic drama you know throughout history wherein like you know it becomes your your downfall right it's and and i i think that uh, we need to start forging like a different path uh out of that so enough enough out of us brianna talk to us about kind of what led you how do you how do you contextualize the birth of the thinking that kind of underlies that article. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thank you both for your extraordinarily kind words about the piece. You're both exactly right that this was not at all meant to be a hit piece 
by any stretch. I am a really dedicated member of DSA. And, you know, the Bernie campaign, both of his bids really provided the the real unity of purpose and practice that the organization needed. Uh, it was the glue that sort of tethered us together. 76% of the membership voted in support of Bernie and his endorsement. And the organization largely united around him. And now that his campaign is over, we've lost that unity of purpose and practice. We have an immense opportunity to build upon it and, you know, tactically channel a lot of the openings that he created. I really do believe that he shifted the ideological terrain. You know, we won the ideological battle. The fact that I can talk to my, uh, well, I can go to the hair salon and I can talk to someone about Bernie Sanders and about Medicare for all. I mean, that was unthinkable several years ago. So I'm now missing my hair salon actually, uh, <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, your roots are showing. I wasn't going to say anything, but fair, uh, you know, fair. that's a problem. You should probably show up to one of those protests, uh, with, with the sign uh, com- complaining about your roots, uh, as we saw in Michigan and elsewhere. You're so but, right. Uh, teasing. Your roots aren't. Your roots are fine. I can't see any roots. Uh, dear listener, we're on a Zoom call, so we're staring at each other's uh, quarantine, you know, uh, ragged faces. It's you true. look fine. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Apologies no, no, no. for that. You're, um, you're right. I mean, it's opened up. That I mean, the, we've said over and over again. Uh, you know, the Sanders wave, whatever you you make of it, has opened up. You know, socialist kind of language, uh, the 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 worldview of socialism to millions and millions of people, and like it's odd that any of us would feel down in the dumps in, in this moment, isn't it? Right. Like, cause we've never like, at least like we've objectively never had as Ben, you know, as you just alluded to a moment ago, we've never had a better terrain to build on than we do now. And yet like, there's a lot to feel a little bit kind of glum about like, what's your sense of, of that feeling, that kind of collective feeling, where does that come Yeah. From? I mean, I guess I'll say two things about that. One, I think a lot of that glumness is obviously the pandemic and the way in which it's accelerating some of the worst features of neoliberalism. And, you know, the shock doctrine is real <laughs> right now. Um, so I think there's that. I think the... The glumness is a little bit misplaced to some degree. I think, you know, in 2015 and in 2016, around the time of Bernie's first bid, several people wrote articles about the left. Uh, I framed my article around Adolf Reed and Mark Dudzik's piece in the Socialist Register, Crisis of Labor and the Left in the U.S., But I could have just as easily framed the piece around Seth Ackerman's really well-known piece, A Blueprint for a New Party. And both of those pieces really became a roadmap for the left and for many in the organization and served to orient it by setting out some really abstract criteria for what a socialist organization should look like. And right. Now that Bernie's second bid is over, I thought it would be appropriate to write a piece that essentially posed the question, are we there yet? (laughs) Which is an actual title of a spreadsheet I have on my computer, um, (laughs) you know, about DSA. And so we've moved a lot in four years and there is much to celebrate. And where we have to improve, you know, I don't think that we should be glum about because I think we're on our way. 
uh, I think we need to think really critically about how to get there. And I think, as you both have discussed, our unwillingness to critique prevents us from being able to actually address those challenges. And you know, we've talked a lot about how I'm a therapist. Like one of the big things that I believe is that if you want to fix a problem, you have to be able to talk honestly about it. And that goes for politics as well. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just realized like you are, if we could clone <laughs> you and like 5,000 little like Brianna's running around, uh, you don't have to be little, you can be like normal <laughs> size, right? Like I think when you clone someone, you don't actually have to like shrink them by one half. I don't know anything about cloning. Um, I just watched Honey, I Shrunk the Kids when I was a kid. But so, you know, uh, I'm always like calling back to shows that like most of my listeners were, were not born yet. Like when they were, <laughs> anyway, anyway, that's a, that's a problem. Uh, that was an old movie, folks, where the kids got shrunk down to, or the father rather got shrunk down. Anyway, I, who, no. who got shrunk down in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Ben, you're older than I am. Yeah. Uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, uh, as the title would suggest, was the kids <laughs> that were shrunk down. The kids were shrunk down. Um, I but actually, then the father had to shrink himself down to save the kids. Isn't that how it ended up? Spoiler. Uh, that Sorry, might guys. be. I mean, I know I watched. Yeah. As, as you say, I'm, I'm old enough that anything that my parents had the VHS, I watched at least 200 times. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, that's how that worked back Not then. YouTube. Um, so so I, I remember some things about that movie very well. Like I remember they were like riding around an ant like it was a horse. But yeah. I, I don't remember yeah. exactly how it um uh, how it ended, but the kids okay. were shrunk that much okay. of that much. I am certain. Um, so welcome, welcome Brianna to the, uh, like ADHD infused, uh, <laughs> new season four of D uh, DPS. Uh, I, let me, let, I got I derailed this thing. Let, let's bring it back on uh, a track here. So if we could clone you like four or 5,000 times, like you're the perfect, like socialist therapist. Cause I've argued, I've said it, right? Like I said it, maybe even like on the second or third episode of DPS three years ago, like, you don't really need political economy or like Marx really to understand the American left. Like you need like the Chicago school of like sociology um, where you're talking about like in-group, out-group uh, kind of like um, distinctions and group formation and stuff like that. And and you being a psychologist obviously is coming at this from a different angle. But like in order to really interrogate those dynamics and the kind of psychosocial aspects of what it is to kind of be around others. Uh, yeah, you really do need like at least an MA in this stuff uh, to navigate like intra intra left politics. So I, I love to hear you say that. Um, let's get this train back on the rails. Uh, what you were talking about, uh, hell, what were you talking about? I'll let you take sure. over. Yeah. So, you know, Seth Ackerman outlined in his piece, right. yes. a set of criteria that I think are really essential. And the piece kind of outlines where we've made progress on those criteria. So, you know, he says we need a democratic organization. DSA is most certainly democratic. We deliberate things. We use Robert's rules. You know, we use uh, procedure to um, come to conclusions about what political activity we're going to undertake. We're member controlled. So the party's members are its sovereign power. We come together through a shared sense of principle we're dues paying. So we're not subject to direct fiscal commitments to a donor class, which means that we're independent. So we determine our, our platform and our education around it. And Ackerman also talks about how this organization needs to contest elections. And we've really started doing that. We've really started endorsing candidates that 
um, are running in strategic seats and are are kind of, I would say, contesting a lot of the the stronghold that the Democratic Party has. You know, what, yeah, yeah, so. So just to just to back up a little bit, right? So all, all these criteria in the Ackerman piece, uh, just just for the benefit of of anybody uh, who's listening, you know, who look, I'm sure if you're listening to Dead Pundit Society, there's like a ninety percent chance you know that essay. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was just, that was episode one. I should I went butt in. That was episode one of DPS. Right. And so like to say that that like to say that that was like uh, almost like um mission statement of dps in terms of where i wanted to go and the kind of left i was trying to like help to contribute to like that's it and so i love the fact that you're grounding all of this in so that, yeah. so but for the for the three people who who started listening with uh season four uh so they didn't hear the interview with seth ackerman back then i'd, I'd say that just to contextualize this why these criteria are supposed to be imported and then like some of what you say about it in your piece what Ackerman is is doing is is he's he's well one he's giving this like really interesting like history of electoral politics in the U.S. and why different left strategies for engaging with that have failed, uh, and so part of that is why efforts to have a separate ballot line third party uh, haven't been successful in the American system, but then the other part that's that's actually you know maybe even the more the more interesting part right is okay. If we kind of recognize that if the DSA formed the Democratic Socialist Party ballot line and, you know, contested as the third party, uh, that would be a road to nowhere under current conditions. Uh, does that mean that we should just be doing all of the things that past leftists who've worked within uh, the Democratic Party and, you know, contest, uh, you know, have, have done, right? Uh, and, you know, who've supported, you know, who supported more progressive Democrats or whatever, and and he says no. There's this Democratic Party machine that that we're opposed to that has all these pressures. They're going to be put on candidates. So part of the reason all those criteria you just laid out are supposed to be so important is because he's sort of foreseen. Even though the Ackerman piece was written before, um, you know, before, for example, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was elected to Congress and all that stuff. Uh, he's he was kind of foreseeing some of the issues that that would come up there, right? That like uh, that if you have somebody who's elected as a Democrat, uh, then they're going to have these tremendous pressures from from their constituents, from the party machinery, etc. That aren't necessarily always going to pull them in the direction you know that we'd like. So we could have without going th- without exiling ourselves to third party irrelevance if we have a, a party within the party that as you say brianna right is has a mem- you know is like a dues paid membership structure its own platform democratic mechanisms etc so my read at least of, of part of why uh seth thought that would be important is so we can then like have some like discipline right like so if, if we so if we elect somebody to to congress and then you know they start voting in ways that you know that like don't go along with our party within the party platform then really ideally what we could do is is like we can kick them out and like nominate you know somebody else run them against them in the future in much the way same way that like a european parliamentary party might exercise that kind of party discipline so at, as you say dsa already checks a lot of these boxes but on the other hand is DSA really right now, given the constellation of forces, 
in a realistic position to exercise that kind of party discipline over its elected officials? Yeah, everything you've said is exactly right. And I think that is the question. And we're not there yet. So I talk a little bit about in the piece, the way that we're not yet at a point where we're running cadre. We're starting to in certain places. And I think that's promising. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, the way that our electoral candidates essentially are endorsed is that other electorally focused progressive organizations like Justice Democrats recruit candidates. They're the ones that shape the campaign and the platform. They're the ones that provide the bulk of the starter capital, as well as the fundraising mechanisms. And then those candidates come to DSA and they ask for us to knock doors for them and to throw some money their way. That's not where we want to be. We want to be in a place where we have a robust working class membership that allows us to be able to run a charismatic working class <laughs> candidate uh, where we can essentially be the only organization or at the very least the necessary and sufficient organization to be mm -hmm. able to provide their starter capital to really shape that platform that it is entirely accountable to and for it to for this candidate to really be a member of our party and our party alone we're certainly not there yet and i think that's just because you know the left is in its adolescence right now sure yeah yeah no that but makes a, that makes a lot of sense and again i mean we do want to kind of take into account that that bigger picture we were talking about earlier, right? Like there's a cartoon that I think I saw going around um, Facebook a while ago that was like the socialist movement in 2010. And there's the guy in the cartoon saying, hey, our uh, our reading group just doubled its membership. And the other person says, oh, my God, three new people. That's amazing. <laughs> and then in the, in the second uh, part of the cartoon, it's the socialist movement in 2020. You know, oh my God, our candidate came in uh, came in second to the Democratic presidential primary. What's the point of even going on? Like, so, uh, yeah. so you know, I, mean, I, I was on the left. You know, like a decade ago, when when one new person would show up to a meeting because they like saw our flyer at a bus stop or whatever. Like, didn't matter like how much of a crank they were. Like, they were an old like '60s radical that had like some really weird like um like off putting like political like conspiratorial political ideology we were nonetheless like super pumped about it. We're like oh my god like socialism is going to go somewhere uh so yeah that, that all that's well taken let's 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 reel back a little bit we talked we started talking about the electoral stuff we started talking about accountability we definitely want to get back to that but before we do let's contextualize this T talk a little bit about the rise of DSA cuz i want to talk about let's talk about the composition let's talk about the kind of um the way in which like the, the organizational structure was inherited from a, a moment from uh, an institutional kind of uh, aim that may or may not be well suited to the kind of uh, the kind of things that are before us today. Uh, and I think you probably, I, I think I just kind of like uh, signposted and signaled my my take on that position. But let's before we do, let's let's rewind. Talk about that kind of meteoric rise of of DSA from you know what was essentially like. You know, I don't know if it was in your piece or whether Ben said it last week was essentially just like a, a, a mailing list, you know, for, for like, 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 you know, old 60s uh, radicals who were still kind of like holding, trying to hold the, the torch. Yeah. I mean, before the Bernie campaign, the composition of DSA was largely retirees. 
which it is certainly not a, I mean, there are a lot of old new lefties kind of knocking around the chapters, but for the most part now it's an organization of people say this all the time, but it's true downwardly mobile millennials uh, who were really energized by Bernie's first bid. I think actually the bump was greater after Trump. I think that was a real wake up call for a lot of people People certainly flooded into the organization when Bernie started running, but for the most part, we saw this huge surge when Trump was elected. And, you know, I do I do want to just quickly mention the demographic question because I think that it is important. And it's probably where a lot of the attention to the piece came from. And I guess I'll say this, which is that you know, everyone in DSA is acutely aware and extremely embarrassed of how white middle class and educated our membership is. And the fact that people reacted pretty strongly to that statistic that was cited is evidence of that fact. And, you know, anyone with a pulse knows that DSA's membership is not uh, militant package drivers who make 90K a year we're not where we want to be as a membership. We really want to be connected to the working class, but we're not. Uh, the majority of members in the organization are young, white-collar professionals. And of course, some of those professionals are being proletarianized. And we shouldn't shy away from embracing those into our organization. And a good example of this is that last week, Doctors for Bernie merged with DSA. And, you know, doctors uh, typically, their median salary is almost 200K. So we wouldn't shy away from embracing them into the organization. They're militant physicians who are fighting for universal single payer health care, and they're undoubtedly on our side. So we want to embrace you know, a lot of kind of like skilled craftsmen that have historically been leading in socialist movements. But for the most part, our organization right now is white collar professionals. And che Guevara was a was a physician. Am I right? I mean, we can uh, we, we can take some into our, our ranks, sure. uh, I would say. But, you know, so I just say, like, you know, addressing the the um, the controversy that was ginned up by your piece. Um, I'll say there. I'll say here that you know, all due respect, your editor didn't do you any any favors by by choosing a pull quote, which was a, a quite marginal you know um, observation <laughs> in your actual piece. But given that nobody reads anymore, uh, the pull quotes that are like blown up to like you know size <laughs> like whatever fifty font, sixty font, you know, and pulled over on the in the margins like draws people's attention to these things as if it's like one of the most important features of of the article. And as I'm scrolling through through your piece right now, it's the only pull quote. So you might have a chat with your editor there at the Bellows. Uh, but, but that poll quote, of course, is the thing that was that spawned a lot of the controversy. It was a finding that, that shocked and astonished a lot of people and other people were kind of uh, in disbelief about it, which is to say that in a member survey, nearly a third of DSA members, so 29%, earn over $100,000 per year. And that, of course, was grist for the mill that exists on this kind of uh, culture war versus anti-culture warrior left. Um, about like, see, aha, I knew it. I told you DSA is incorrigibly PMC and neoliberal and that's, you know, they're, and, and all the rest of it. It just kind of gives a lot of grist for that mill. Talk to us about what, why you included that little tidbit and, and contextualize that for the kind of case that you were trying to make in, in this broader piece. Sure. You know, I think it, it's just that, that I wanted to characterize the membership 
to demonstrate that we're not where we want to be. And unfortunately, any serious organization would have a membership census that they would publish quarterly for the internal organization, which includes basic demographics of its members, the occupation, their salaries, the level of organization in their workplaces. And for all of us who are really interested in making organic connections to the actually existing working class and organized labor, it'd be nice for us to be able to track this information so we can see whether or not our campaigns are effective at actually activating a working class base and bringing them into the organization. I haven't seen any data on DSA's membership that's come out in the past year. I've been told that it's currently in the midst of collecting this information But I think we need to publish these data regularly to be able to assess whether or not we're effective at our goals. So that was the most available data that I had. And unfortunately, it's three years old. So I wanted people to take it with a grain of salt, which is why there's a lot of hedging in the actual piece of the the survey response rate, the fact that it's from 2017. It's not up to date. And I'm sure that the membership looks a little bit different in 2020 than it de- than it did in 2017. Yeah, yeah. But that's all I had. So I wanted to make it more concrete than just, mm-hmm. you know, right, right. people tweeting about how DSA is so white, which, of course, it is. <laughs> yeah, it, it is uh, for sure. I mean, and, and and there are there are more and less like useful, you know, things to things to do with this. Like, you know, like I could, I could remember, well, you know, in those battle days we were talking about earlier, right? You know, it's the, uh, in, in organizations other than DSA, I, I can remember uh, spending a lot of time at meetings that seemed to be largely devoted to hand-wringing about those sort of demographic questions without, without anything particularly coming of it except for, like, I don't know, some sort of, like, psychodrama of, like, introspection about, like, how bad it is. But, of course... You know, in your piece, you're not doing that, right? Like you're you're not you're not saying, oh, let's all feel bad about the fact that this is where we're we're starting from, you know, because because this is these are the people who initially showed up, right? What you're trying to do is is to think about how how that could change, right? You know, and and I think that that ties in with what you were talking about earlier, which is the way that when the Bernie moment happened, right? With then and and even when the the second Bernie campaign happened, uh, starting in two thousand and nineteen, anybody with like any kind of rudimentary strategic sense at all could tell that that was what we should be doing, right? That that's that that was the that this was obviously a huge opening for socialists, and that we should take it and we should we should try to push it as as far as it could go, and you know. Uh, Obviously, it would have been amazing and totally altered the train of struggle in a really positive way, you know, if if you if it won. But you know, but but even if not, right? You know, you you have to um, you have to do whatever you can to build up your forces, and this was this was an obvious way of doing so. But now that that that's over, it's a little bit it's a little bit less clear what what socialists should be doing. You know, like it's it's not just like there's this big flashing neon sign in the sky, right? You know, it's Bernie, right? You know that like there's no there's no missing it, or you know, I guess for 24 percent of members there is, but for uh, for everybody else, there's there's no missing it. Now we have to actually think about it a little bit, and and this ties in with the um, the demographic question, presumably, right? Because because there are some things that socialists could be doing right now 
that are probably going to lead to just spinning wheels, right? You know, like like continuing to have about the kind of organization that exists right now. And presumably there are other things that we could be doing that might lead to that might lead to engaging with a broader group of people in um in an effective enough way that uh that more people outside of the kind of milieu that DSA tends to draw from now might become engaged in the future. Can you speak to what that might look like? Yeah, and, and let me jump in. Let's talk about how, you know, that our, our lack of direction in in the wake of Bernie Sanders is largely self-inflicted. And you talk about this in your piece, like explicitly. It's self-inflicted in the sense that the Bernie campaign gave us an opportunity to, co- to cohere around a set of demands and priorities that we ourselves refused to make when we had the chance in 2019, specifically at the convention. So maybe, yeah, contextualize kind of Ben's provocation in that way. Yeah, exactly. I think, Adam, what you just said is is a nice uh, addendum to to what Ben said, which is that, you know, our demographic problem certainly exacerbates a lot of our issues, but an organization of 60,000 can make major interventions in politics if we're disciplined and focused on wildly popular issues. Priorities are essential for any organization on the left. You know, the strength of of a movement of the working class is not our capital or our access to power structures in society. It's the fact that we're the majority of people and we have structural leverage in the political economy. And with few resources and limited credibility in mainstream politics, what the left's appeal is, is that we can organize around those shared majoritarian interests. And uh, I pulled that quote from Nye Bevan, who led to the establishment of, of Britain's National Health Service. He said that the language of priorities is the religion of socialism, which I loved because, you know, given our limited capacity to actually effectuate change on a major scale in politics, we really need to focus our limited time and energy. And I use some examples of the Labor Party and their manifesto, which a lot of people attributed to their loss in 2019 as an example or as a foil, really, for what happens if we don't focus. For one, uh, the working class just doesn't find it believable. And uh, they're right to not find it believable. (laughs) Yeah, I I mentioned Uh, last week, it's like a a four-year-old's Christmas wish list, right? I want a pony and I want a Barbie playhouse and I want to, and it's like, oh yeah, we get it. You want all the things, right? Like, and eventually it's sort of like, uh, yeah, it beggars belief at some point that, you know, that we could ever live in a world with all these things, right? And it's it's also, and and that's like a really interesting example too, because a big part of the the problem there, as, as I understand it, is... That that last election in the UK was probably as close as you're ever going to get to a completely single issue uh, general election, right? That there was there's exactly one thing that was on most people's minds, and that was Brexit, and that was unfortunately precisely the issue where Labour had the hardest time formulating a clear message, and and so especially against that background, just kind of having this this Christmas list of like a hundred ideas that might even all be good ideas, yep. right? But like none of none of them particularly stand out, right? You know, like none, so it's not like, oh, you know, we're going to save the NHS, right? That's like a really clear uh, issue in the way that like, like I think if, I think most people, if you just gave them like a free association test and like one of the words <laughs> was Bernie, 
they would say Medicare for all, right? Like that's that's that 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 would just be the the words that would pop out of their mouths because he talked about it so much and it was such a it's such a simple idea and it's so it's so easy to kind of get that like there's just there's just no missing it and and then and then you could have the same problem like if if like somebody who's like a you know a curious person you know like like sort of stumbles into to a, a DSA meeting and what they and what they hear are sort of reports for the work of 50 different commissions that are doing 50 different things and it all seems like it's sort of equally prioritized then maybe they'll connect to some of what they're they're hearing or or they'll get excited about it but there's also the danger that they're not going to have a oh this is like the big exciting thing that they're they're promoting right this is the heart of everything yeah yeah. so so what Uh, happened Pardon the interruption, everybody. I hope that you guys are enjoying Ben and I's interview with Brianna Last. I think chats like this are going to be increasingly important in the post-burning moment. We have a lot to be excited about on the left, but there are a lot of things that we need to get sorted so that we can move forward in a productive way. There's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering right now, but the ineptitude of the ruling political and economic elites in this country could not be more clear than they are today. So I think the left has a lot of exciting prospects despite our glum assessment of the present collectively. So uh, in order to continue episodes like this one, I think that uh, DPS holds a very unique place in the podcast socialist media ecosystem in terms of having conversations like this one consistently. So in order to continue having those conversations, we need your support. More specifically, I'm asking you to become one of the three to four hundred some odd patrons of DPS and support this enterprise with your hard-earned wages. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at a level at which you are comfortable with. Our patrons get access to our weekly B-sides where we go in-depth about various topics. This week, Ben and I will be riffing extensively. It's about a two-hour episode on our conversation that we had with Brianna today. We're going to be talking more extensively about the challenges facing the left and what maybe we ought to do about them. Our patrons are going to get a full dose of that this week. In addition to getting access to our weekly B-sides, patrons also get access to another valuable segment that we call In Case You Missed It. Uh, I scour the internet across space and time in order to bring you some of the most interesting interviews, lectures, presentations, Um, You know, learning events put on by various DSA chapters, other organizations, other media outlets even. And um, I know there's a lot of stuff that appears on your podcast feed. It appears on YouTube. It appears in some of the darker, harder to reach corners of the Internet. And I curate this collection for the patrons. Some of the things that I wish I would have done if I had it my way, some of the interviews I wish I would have conducted if I had it my way, but I bring those with permission to my patrons each week in this, this series called in case you missed it. And that is another really valuable uh, reward that our patrons get for supporting DPS with their hard earned wages. So if you have some expendable income in this moment, if you are saddened by the disappearance of Bernie Sanders from the political scene, and you have a little bit of extra money, perhaps say, of extra money that's not going to the Bernie Sanders campaign each month, consider moving that money to DPS or projects like it. Once more, that's patreon.com slash deadpundits. We cannot do this without you guys. 
All right. Enjoy the remainder of the interview. So, so what um, happened in 2019? Let's let's get to that because I think this is a really grounds the kind of problems that we want to talk about for the rest of the of, of the thing. I mean, we had a, a monumental opportunity to kind of consolidate the growth and the, and the the shift to the left of the broader organization, and yet what came out of that convention was anything but you know kind of sort of concentrating that moment. You talk about some of the the propositions, the proposals that did pass that convention, and they were all over the place and scattered. Talk to us about that aspect. That's exactly right. At the convention in Atlanta, we debated, or we we didn't have the opportunity because there were too many. We debated 88 resolutions, which were something like 400 pages of documents. And rather than debating the future of the organization, a clear political vision that would allow us to better fund the national organization, to better coordinate the activity of its members around a narrow set of priorities we had essentially a wish list and everyone had their own particular issue that they were passionate about and fought for rather than coming together around that clear political vision that we were just talking about. And so you kind of saw this pandemonium evident throughout. But one of the examples that I thought was really telling is um So rather than having priorities around labor, which were the priorities that came out of the 2017 convention, at the 2019 National Convention, there were several labor resolutions that were proposed. And there was one that was called Towards a Clear Multifaceted Strategy for Labor. There was one called Labor Strategy and the DSLC. And the other was called something like Prioritizing Labor. And the debate over these issues was exemplary of this confusion. And we had people motivating resolutions by focusing on the importance of union democracy, and then people speaking about the importance of making alliances with union leadership. And it made no sense because anyone who's invested in taking labor movement issues seriously knows that context, the moment in time, the sector all play a role in determining which labor strategy to apply. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee that the authors of those resolutions know that to be the case as well. But because the convention didn't task us with priorities, but individual resolutions, the deliberative process focused on a kind of either or, as opposed to a nimble and smart labor strategy. So when we think about like the purpose of deliberation at a convention, part of it is also political education, because it's an opportunity for people who are pretty active in the organization to present an argument to the general membership and argue for why that concrete political activity is important. But we weren't offered the chance to do that. We weren't offered the chance to come together and think about the narrow demands that we want to make as an organization. And If you read Marxist thinkers who have thought about this question really seriously, party programs or priorities don't just focus the resources of the organization, they also form the will of their members. They serve an ideological function, which is to shape the class consciousness of its members. And so we left the organization uh, essentially where we started, which was a loose network of locals that have a pretty non-hierarchical relationship with the national organization. And the sad fact is that uh, the organization continues to be pretty decentralized. Yeah. So 
and I mean this this is something that I've I've even gone back and forth a little bit on in the past. Uh, you know, in the last couple of years, I've I've been much less active in in DSA. You know, for a few reasons, partially just because like I've been doing a lot of other things. But you know, I, I was a delegate not at at this uh, last convention, but at, at the one uh, before that, and and some of this stuff was on the table there and and I I can see the force of a concern that somebody might have right about saying that like it it needs to be less of this decentralized federation of locals right so cuz cuz you could think okay well one thing that I don't want right is is for DSA to just be like a socialist version of some like liberal nonprofit that's like really directed out of a national office uh, rather than having policies that are in a meaningful way coming from from uh, deliberation among the membership, right? And and that's like a real, and that's a real concern, I think. But at the same time, that as you say, a sixty thousand member organization can intervene effectively in, in, in larger political contexts, but presumably several dozen much smaller organizations right you know uh in different cities can't right so uh so so i mean how how do we sort of how do we balance that or like what's 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 the uh like what do you think it might look like to have something that was like maybe a little bit more nationally cohesive i would say that we're dsa is on the really extreme end of decentralization so I think it's perfectly fine that people have a diversity of political opinion in the organization. And in fact, I think that that can be healthy. So long as we can agree on at least some basic principles and some shared tasks. And that's what the Ackerman piece outlines as well, because we don't share material interests. <laughs> Everyone's all over the map. It's not like a union where, okay, you know, I'm, you know, I'm an anarchist when I'm at home. And like, um, uh, I, I read Katsky when I'm at home, but like, we both want higher wages. Um, like the only thing we really have is uh, our principles <laughs> that unite us. And so we need to agree on something. And, you know, within my chapter, there are people that are, you know, there's substantial diversity about like the electoral question. There are some good old social Democrats who are ne- not necessarily convinced that we need to be reading old, musty Marxist texts. And then there are others that are very skeptical of electoralism. But when two thirds of the membership decides to vote in favor of supporting an electoral strategy, these individuals work to honor the general will of the membership. And that's what building a real socialist organization looks like. You don't always get what you want. Um, And if you really want to win, you have to argue convincingly and you have to be able to win a room. Uh, If we actually want to build something greater than this, you have to be able to at least convince, um, you know, 200 people that show up to a general meeting. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of of the issues I've been wrestling with since the beginning of DPS is the, the absence of deliberative mechanisms inside of DSA and this kind of collapse or even just utter absence of like what I would call like a, anything resembling a democratic culture inside the organization. And it's, these are things that I've been tackling, like step trying to do, you know, in my own little way, in a little relatively meaningless way, like piece by piece, issue by issue over the past few years is that like, what are the things that get in the way of like real discussion, real open, honest, like 
brave like saying of, of you know see something say something what what is what's happening inside the organization what are the dynamics right um and and you know the way in which we saw certain um certain we've seen certain cliques form inside of of the organization we've seen uh various caucuses come up various working groups come up which like in theory ought to be good for kind of like cohering a certain line and then propagating it across the organization but in practice it's just become a way of like ever more like completely refining the echo chambers that exist inside the organization. And, and I say this with love because some of the people that I love and I bring on my show a lot and I consider friends and comrades and allies in the struggle. Uh, you know, I, uh, I think that, you know, a lot of those types of people have been behind these projects as well. And if they're honest, I think they would see the limitations of those projects as well. Um, and you know, I don't know if it's just like my, my, maybe you can psychoanalyze me later, Brianna, <laughs> but I don't know if it's just like my, my disposition, my like raging, like mostly like unmanaged ADHD or what, but like, I just, I can't help, but like when I see something, I just say it. <laughs> right. And it's made me remarkably unpopular, uh, on the left, as long as I've been on it, uh, because there's this way in which like, you're supposed to code your disagreements. You're supposed to sort of, um, I mean, that's the problem. When I see these resolutions that emerged in the convention in 2019, I was just like, God damn it. Just say it. Like, just come out with it. You don't like the people <laughs> that you're trying to, like, you know, like oppose here. And without just like saying like, hey, these people think that the bureaucrats and the union, whatever, uh, can can pave the way to like, you know, labor militancy. And we don't. And like, But they won't. Well, we think that. The, and I'm saying this a lot because I was in favor of the rank and file strategy in a sense. But we think that the rank and file strategy is the best because this is. No, you have an open and blatant like faction fight. With other labor-oriented socialists inside this organization. So just fucking come out with it, right? And like, how do we do that in a way that's like constructive and open and w- without it being like coded in like layers upon layers of like academic speak and, and dare I say like PMC like nicety? And, and just to just to put a little bow on that, uh, you know, this like this this thing about about clicks and all of that. I think does really speak to part of the answer to to what we were just talking about 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 centralization, because like decentralized could almost sound like a synonym for for uh, for democratic, and 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 I think I've I've kind of fall you know, like to do a little self crit. I think I've kind of followed for that at some times in the past, but of course it's not right. I mean the same way that uh, not the same way right, but like you know, but in broadly right the same way. That decentralized government structures can can um, can cover up for all sorts of little horrors, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, right. think about the history of states' rights. Uh, then, oftentimes, uh, decentralism isn't so much a uh, a matter of oh, everybody has more say because you know because it's spread out. Uh, what it, what it really means is that if you have some little click in some in some particular area or some particular area of work, uh, that can just kind of rule over its own little fiefdom, right? With without um, without being challenged. So uh, so for example, in that vote that you talked about earlier, where seventy six percent of the membership uh, voted to uh, to endorse Bernie Sanders instead of like waiting for four months to do that, you know, at at the convention, which would have been vastly less democratic anyway because you know because um in practice uh one of the main ways that chapters send delegates uh is that the people who who volunteer right who have the time and the ability 
to travel to Atlanta are often, especially in smaller chapters, made delegates by default, and then they can do whatever they want when they get there. Uh, but when that was going on, I remember one of the most like striking incidents in that debate, right, was that there was this ferocious like online debate leading up to it, right? If you were just judging by the online debate, you wouldn't think it would have been 76-24. You would have thought it would be like maybe 50-50. Um, and then towards the end of the process, I think even after the membership vote had come in with the 76%, there was some, I think it was called like the Afro-Socialist Caucus or something like that. I don't remember exactly. But uh, some organization that, you know, within DSA that like literally I think uh, the number of people involved in is like maybe a few dozen, right? That they, uh, that it's it's not, you know, it's it's a tiny tiny subsection of the organization and I'm sure a tiny subsection of the far too small black membership of the organization. Uh, And they had this intervention towards the end where they like said, Hey, we don't like this. We call on like the, the NPC not to, not to approve this thing. And, and, and fortunately to my mind, that wasn't a successful intervention, but like it, but they, the fact that, an organization representing such a tiny slice of the membership would be calling for uh, the leadership to ignore the will of the membership, uh, the overwhelming will of the membership, I, I think is maybe a very telling sign of the way that people can form their own little fiefdoms within like a really loose decentralized organization. And they can kind of like get their say, you know, with within that, right? If if you're if you're a local and like the people who happen to be running the local, oftentimes because they're sort of the first people to show up, right? Uh, get to get to sort of set the set the agenda. This this can not only be very democratic; it, it can be very um, it can be very undemocratic. And and then what Adam's talking about, I think, ties into that too. That oftentimes, even if people have good politics now and 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 then maybe they've been you know proletarianized through downward mobility in the way you're talking about people who come out of certain sorts of professional backgrounds I think there is this like deeply imbued cultural thing of not quite engaging openly right you know that like you know you never want to be quite just coming out with it and talking shit about people because that's like unprofessional and the danger of that in an organization where you want to have democratic deliberation is that you get this bizarre situation where there are like, you know, five caucuses that all have websites where they explain what they're about that like you'd have to spend an hour trying to carefully compare them to try to figure out what the difference is. And so really in practice, it just comes down to like who you know and who you trust, which seems like if, if what you want, is an organization that has, you know, people are debating and frankly deliberating all those internal differences you were talking about in your chapter. And then ideally, everybody takes a vote and then you go with what the most people raise their hands for. That that seems very unhealthy. So, so what do we do about that? <laughs> yeah, I think all of those points are really astute observations. I think I think you've touched on several things. One is the fact that DSA is run by volunteers. So we spend our hours after our employer has stolen them (laughs) 
invested in this project and it's essentially recreational for a lot. It's, of- it's, a, it's a really weird thing to do too. Like we need to just like always flag that. I always try to flag that how fucking weird it is that we do this. Yeah. But anyway, it's strange. I mean, I constantly, I, I need self-analysis um, myself. Um, <laughs> and so you're asking people to, you know, spend their time on something that may not be something that they're most passionate about. So if you're really passionate about focusing on anti-fascism, but your organization decides that anti-fascism is not a priority, it's really hard to think about why that person would be involved in the organization. Uh, I get it, you know? It's extremely counterintuitive, this culture of solidarity, because there's not that shared material interest in the same way. So it it is a real challenge. I think it's structural. I think a lot of it also has to do with some of the things that I point to in the piece about how there are extremely limited criteria for joining the organization. You know, people can join and then in two weeks cast determinative votes on leadership. This creates a tremendous amount of instability in the organization. It undermines our credibility to other potential coalition partners which further makes us weak. Uh, So it's a real challenge. And I think that the more that we connect to a working class base that has something to gain and also something to lose, the more serious our conversations will be. And so we really, really need that working class base. And I think the way that we're going to get there is through these bread and butter demands. Um, On the question of moralism, I think, you know, every socialist is invested in socialism because of, in part, a moral compass, right? Capitalism prevents the possibility and realization of true freedom and democracy. And that moral imperative guides a lot of people uh, to join DSA. And I think Bernie relied on that ethical imperative. But the type of moralism that you were talking about, Ben, which I think is an astute observation, is this moralism of interlocking oppressions and fighting against bigotry, which is really just a kind of class politics, as you said, you know, this kind of middle class politics. It prevents us from thinking clearly about class and it prevents us from really understanding the underlying dynamics of political economy that prevents us from true egalitarianism. And I think, I think you know, we need to be very clear about that. I think there are people who are afraid to say that because we're conflict averse middle class individuals. Um, Some of us, but I, yeah, but I, I think we need. Some of to, us just I, constantly put their own feet in their own mouths uh, time and time again. But. Yeah, but 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 it's but but Brianna, I mean that's this this is this is a really important point, and and just just to underline what you're saying, uh, like of co- of course. And, you know, I, I realize that even before I say it, that I'm, I'm like falling into the trap of trying to avoid like caricatures of, of the of the positions we're talking about here that are, are going to be made regardless of what anyone says. Right. You know, that's just that's just the nature of, of the deal. But like even so. Right. Uh, of course, it's not that, you know, it's not that interlocking bigotries don't exist. It's not that we're not against right. them. Right. I mean, of course we are. Right. Like I, I'm socialists always have been. Right. I mean, it's, you know, like socialists and communists were, were a huge part of the civil rights movement. And, you know, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? That like, so, and those sort of basic moral feelings that you talked about, and I think that's a really good distinction that we want that, of course, of course, there's 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 a there's a moral impulse behind behind socialist politics, right? If if not, right, you know, I mean, why bother like organizing together with your fellow workers instead of just like angling for promotion, right? You know, that's uh, so like of course right. there's this democratic and egalitarian, you know, liberatory uh, impulse, but we want to make a distinction between having that kind of moral impulse, which gives you a reason to fight to change institutions for the better, right? You know, to create a better society and reducing politics to a kind of performance of your own individual moral virtue, uh, which is what a lot of what you're talking about comes down to when it comes to the ways that people want us to think and talk about these interlocking bigotries, right? That it's it's not, you know, because of course... Um, you know, if there's there's a world of difference between saying we want of you know we're obviously um, opposed to all forms you know of prejudice and discrimination, and we want legal guarantees against that, and we want by the way unionized workplaces which are the best non legal guarantee against all of those things, and saying. We want to constantly do an inventory of the souls of all of our members to make sure that they're not suffering from trace amounts of any of these attitudes. And, and we want to and we want to set up this culture where people constantly have to prove themselves, often by their mastery of this very specialized quasi-academic language for talking about these bigotries and their opposition to them. Which um, you know, not to not to belabor something that I think is pretty straightforward, but I think that there is some of that in DSA. It depends on it depends on where, right? Like like as we've been saying, it varies wildly between different areas and you know and and, and different subcultures within it. But there is some, and that's a problem because most ordinary people, right? Most of these working class people that we're talking about. And, you know, this in working, you know, ordinary working class people is not a dog whistle for straight white male working class people, right? It just means like most people who aren't immersed in this stuff, right? Most people who are just going to their jobs and coming home and whatever, regardless of their demographics, most people don't particularly enjoy being yelled at or or feeling like, they're being put under like a sort of microscope. And so to the extent that they would say, oh, we're, we, you should come join us because this is going to be really fun. What's going to happen is that uh, is that you can come uh, join our movement and then we'll and then we'll start like questioning what you say and do and your motivations in the most uncharitable possible way forever. Yeah, well, well let, let me let me talk about my experiences in, in, at various moments in, in socialist organizations. We'll we'll get you to join us, and then we'll, we'll work <laughs> to make your life a living hell. Okay, I'm. I mean, I'm, I, I could talk about these things explicitly. Uh, I won't. Uh, I'll air those on the B side for the patrons. You guys should uh, join the Patreon uh, DPS patreon.com slash dead pundits. We'll, we'll give you the dirt there, but uh, we will <laughs> absolve Brianna of that responsibility for a side chat here. Keep it uh, keep it kosher. But you're you're not wrong about this. I mean, your piece is really, really uh, centers on on this question. So talk a little bit about like um, how how it is that we can 
we can sort of normify the organization in a way yeah. that that you and your your um your comrades in Philly are kind of infamously at this point in time known for. Um, <laughs> how do we normify DSA? And by normie, of course, it's not a dog whistle of any kind. It's just to insinuate that we need we need to reach like actual workers, uh, the actually <laughs> actually existing normie, multiracial, multi ethnic, multi everything. Uh, you know, beautifully rainbow colored uh, <laughs> working class we've got here. In, in this melting pot that is the yeah. United States. How, what do you, I mean, this is a massive provocation, but, but how yeah, are you framing I'm glad this in the that context you, of your piece? Um, want to reject a little bit the language of normal, because I think, I think that that is one, a little bit uninterpretable and two, uh, beside the point, because the fact of the matter is, is that the actually existing working class, as you just said, is extremely diverse and so the question is not about whether or not these intentions are good, but whether or not it's strategic and whether or not you can actually build a constituency around that program. And this is like some real vulgar Marxism, but I think there's some signal to it, which is that the stock market dipped when Bernie Sanders was r- running on a program for Medicare for All. Uh, the stock market didn't fall when Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote the Atlantic article for the case for reparations. And that gives you some kind of signal. Again, it's pretty vulgar, but one of them is perceived as a real threat (laughs) and the other is not, right? And that's because that project is not politically realizable. So I'm not imputing the thoughts in people's heads. I think a lot of people are really well-intentioned. They're really well-meaning. It's just that we live in 2020 and that culture is infused with this type of class politics. Every week I get an email from my workplace about how we need to raise the voices of women And, you know, that email is not about the voices of the custodial staff. It's about the voices of women that are already in the seat of power. So obviously we want egalitarianism at all levels of society. uh, And what that means is creating a strategy that can actually get us there. So what I think that means is recommitting to Medicare for all. I mean, I think it's so obvious, but now 70% of Americans support Medicare for all. Again, this was unthinkable several years ago. But we also know that political preferences are malleable and that they're shaped by what seems politically possible in the national landscape. And so we have a narrow window of opportunity before that opinion shifts. This pandemic is just more evidence that we need Medicare for all and we should be focusing all of our energy on that. Um, so that means going out and supporting Bernie's uh, Healthcare Emergency Guarantee Act. It means working on the state level to try and um, increase uh, insurance for folks. I think these bread and butter issues are our future. And what's nice is that Bernie provided a kind of litmus test for us because we could see what was actually moving people from passivity to activity in uh, on the national landscape, and we were able to actually understand what's convincing. And I think that those bread and butter issues are what is going to build us that base that we need. Let, let's talk. Let's let's finish here on the question of the kind of organizational structure of DSA because this has been one of my hobby horses for for a long time, and I've been sure. a long time critic of of the the quote big tent. Uh, aspect mm-hmm. of DSA. And I can say that because I'm a layabout podcast and I'm not responsible to any constituency except for perhaps my patrons. Um, and I'm known and I'm known to go at them from time to time as well if I need to. 
but you know, so that's just to say that, you know, I, I've, I've argued in favor of a big tenants in the sense that, yeah, that, that like, it's kind of like, what is it? Malcolm X said, oh yeah, American civilization, like that, that would be great or something like that. Right. Like, you know, for me, like I say this in the same sense, right? Like, uh, oh, like a big tent DSA, like that would be great. Right. And like, it's, it's an aspiration is never, but in, because like when you carve up a national organization into this kind of confederalist project with these little fiefdoms existing in various cities and localities across the country, it's not a big tent. You're just carving out little sectors of that big tent for a, a, a narrow click, uh, you know, oftentimes, let's be honest, based on affinity uh, in some senses uh, to kind of um, rule the roost and make their own principles and ground their own sort of project there. Um, and sometimes they're good, you know, sometimes they aren't so good, but they do the best they can, whatever. Let's be charitable as we can. But that's not a big tent. This is not uh, a living, breathing organism. Look, I'm I'm showing my trot roots here. Uh, <laughs> they like to use like or, or, organic, uh, like uh, you know, um, allegories, metaphors. It's not a living, breathing organism, right? Like that is comprised of multiple limbs and different cells that you know have their own function and do their own thing, but at the same time work together in you know in conjunction with the broader uh, you know organization. This the, this it's quite it's quite the opposite, really. And so, you know, so part of my critique of the big tent is not that like in theory isn't a good, good idea is that in practice, it's falling very, very, we're falling very, very short of even being that, but, but going even further, again, I can say this because I'm a layabout podcaster. Is that an aspiration in this moment that we, that we'd like, right? Could we actually, in fact, do way more damage with 3000 disciplined, um, cohesive, coherent socialist militants could 3000 uh, socialists who are all on the same page about the most basic and fundamental questions work together like a well-oiled machine and, and push a socialist agenda going forward in the United States far better than a 60,000 member organization that lacks any cohesiveness or, or coherence. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's a question. I'm not sure about the numbers, <laughs> like whether or not yeah, it's three thousand. Highly 000. arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but I think uh, probably the the disciplined ranks are certainly a subset of the sixty thousand, or maybe now it's seventy thousand. But I do think that um, when the organization set up priorities in 2017, and Ben, you were you were a part of this convention, so you can probably speak more to this. Medicare for all was part of that. And then um, about 90 chapters committed to a Medicare for all campaign. That's great. Um, I think that if we continue to commit to Medicare for all, that number will surely grow. And so I think that there's promise. Um, I think that the, what you're going to see is the potential for there to be two dynamics or two streams within DSA. There are the people that are going to be focusing on these bread and butter priorities like Medicare for all, like fighting for a Green New Deal, like socialist legislators and forging ties with the labor movement. And then you're going to see probably people who are fighting at every, at every daily outrage uh, that you know neoliberalism invariably produces. And I think that that can be really distracting and harmful. We need to stay focused. I mean, part of the strength of Bernie is that he's been saying the same exact thing for like decades. Um, and we kind of need to do that. And so I think that there is potentially even a silent majority that is working towards those goals. And so, again, I think that that's promising. The fact that we have increasing partnerships with healthcare workers and healthcare worker unions 
is another step in the right direction. So there's potential. And then there's also exactly as you say, Adam, there are um, elements that uh, aren't as productive. Yeah. Like, let's be honest. After 2017, I was also very engaged in that in that convention. Um, after 2017, I won't speak about the current composition of the NPC. But after 2017, we had elements inside the NPC who were, at least ideologically speaking, actively opposed to a national organization, to DSA being a national organization, right? This is tantamount to having Tea Party uh, Republic. I'm not calling them Tea Party. Everybody call off the dogs. Everybody, <laughs> everybody just calm the, calm the fuck down, okay? Calm down. I'm not calling them Tea Party Republicans. It's what we call in the literary sciences a metaphor. I'm about to draw a metaphor. It's 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 like in some respects, and I'm about to elucidate after I say this. Finish the sentence. The Tea Party Republicans going into Congress in 2012 fundamentally opposed to the national government having a serious role in the lives in, in the lives of Americans. Right? There's a contradiction there. Right? They're sort of. I mean, some of these Tea Party folks said, "Hey, I'm actually sitting in this seat to in- ensure that you know some." big, big government liberal doesn't do anything. I'm just going to do nothing to ensure that somebody else isn't going to come in here and, and act. Uh, and, and so I'm not saying that that's the similar mechanism per se, like in a one-to-one way, but there's similarities in terms of like, we have people ho- holding seats in a national organization at the, na- at the highest levels who feel as though there isn't a role for like a, an, an empowered national collectivity in, in, in those ways. Uh, you know, I'm not going to drag you into some of those debates, again, <laughs> given that you have skin in the game. You know, I don't. Again, lay about podcaster, third time, I'll keep going. Uh, but like, what do we do about these, like these glaring contradictions that exist organizationally speaking for this, for this institution? I mean, we have to look at the way that the institution is formed. Like, it, can, is it structurally suited to deliver what is necessary in this moment? Because if, if, if the machine isn't, you know, geared towards doing the thing that you'd like it to, you know, if, 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 if what you need is a submarine and instead you've got a Volkswagen, mm-hmm. right. You're going to be really disappointed when you drive that Volkswagen into a lake, you know? Uh, so which is it? And again, Ben, it doesn't, doesn't have to be an either or I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> is it a submarine or is it a Volkswagen? And you better know before you drive that motherfucker into the ocean. That's, you know, that's, that's where a lot of my frustration comes from. And fine. If you don't, if you, if you don't think that there's a role for the national organization to play fine, but to find yourself sitting, you know, seated beside other people who do, it's, it's, a, it's a glaring contradiction. What do we do about the messiness of the organization right now? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm not sure I have all of the answers, but I guess I will say a couple of things. One, I think the Bernie campaign was really helpful in connecting people who are really serious about these campaigns with people who are outside of DSA, but were committed to Bernie. So the DSA for Bernie campaign allowed us to connect with coalition partners that are really serious about Medicare for all and other bread and butter demands. It created essentially a loose network. And so hopefully uh, organizations like Our Revolution and whatever comes out of the Bernie campaign will be able to connect with dedicated members in DSA to actually build something DSA, as it currently stands, is, like you said, that kind of loose network. And unfortunately, because of the decentralized nature of national, it doesn't really have an impact on what locals are doing. So some locals are doing really well, and they have robust campaigns for Medicare for All and are making real headway. And, you know, 
we're lucky to be situated in Pennsylvania, which is like a purple state. And so it's it's pretty amazing that we have a really functional DSA chapter. That's not the case in other places. And I'm not really sure what to do about that in terms of like the national org. But I think as long as one, we're democratically deliberating within the organization and making our best effort to actually win people over to our program, I think that there's the potential for us to be able to expand our ranks. And two, I think as long as we're also connecting with mission mm-hmm. yeah. partners, they see some real, those are the, the twofold strategies. And I, I guess I'd also maybe push back against, against the metaphor a little bit just in this sense, right? Which is that I think that the, the Volkswagen-iness uh, <laughs> of, of, uh, of, of much of DSA as it exists right now is result of a larger set of conditions that um, that look. I mean, like on some level, like okay, it, it's this like weird contingent fluke that what had been really prior to like maybe like 2015, you know, mostly like you know this like old Harry tonight mailing list yeah. that um, you know there were like a few people at the national office who sat right. out of a bit of Democratic left and you know. And, like, there'd be, you know, maybe, like, a few real branches that had meetings, you know, that, like, uh, when Bernie Sanders said the phrase Democratic Socialist a lot, and so you Google Democratic Socialist, one of the first things you're going to get is Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, And so this is kind of where everybody went, right? And you have what in in many ways, and don't get me wrong, I I think that there's – I think that there are interesting insights and things that you can learn from even, in fact, Michael Harrington and previous people at DSA, but – in some ways, it's it's just this bizarre historical fluke that DSA happened to be the thing. But I think some of the Volkswagen-iness, I think, would have existed no matter what the thing was, because it just it just stems from larger conditions that you kind of have to play with the team that you've got, you know, and and this is and any team that formed right now at this moment, right, would probably look like this to 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 a certain extent. And and you know, you just kind of have to like go f- go forward and, and think about how you could how you could make it better. So so I mean I, I think that's like all right, so maybe it would be nice if we had a submarine, but uh but we don't, right? So maybe we could at least yeah, like yeah. trick out the Volkswagen to be like one of those cars in James Bond movies that could like turn <laughs> you know turn into a boat when it goes into the water or something. Yeah. That, and that's be... obviously a much harder thing. It would be great if we could just if we could just start with the submarine, but um we don't we don't have one. Yeah. No, you're you're spot on, and that's and that's very. It's nice that we've come full circle this way because you're right. Like you know, anybody who listens to the show knows at times I get a little heated. It's because I care, folks. It's because I care. <laughs> uh, and like, and I'm and I'm I'm notoriously impatient, and I you know, and I and and I see dynamics, and it's just so crystal clear to me. And like, why the fuck can't everybody else see it, right? Uh, and so I scream into a microphone, emote into a microphone uh, every week, uh, but. You know, these are the challenges that are lay ahead and the difference between us and I think some of the people that we have been um, in conversation with, to put it lightly, over the past several weeks explicitly on the show is that we do uh, look at this in terms of like – I think, you know, Megan Day said it really well on Twitter at one point. She got a lot of shit for this because people misread it as like as they always do, right? Uh, she said, you know, you can't third party in scare quotes the left, right? There's no yeah. like after after Bernie. There's no you can't third party the left, right? The left it, it it is what it is, and it's like I you know Ben you you called up one of my favorite sports metaphors there, which is to say that you know you don't 
they always say, yo, you don't get to play with the 11 guys you wish you had. You, you, know, you got to play with the 11 guys on the roster or whatever. I don't know why I just pulled up like my best uh, uh, Chicago accent, but uh, maybe the Bears, I don't know, whatever. So, you you know, like you you have no, – I, I, I like it. It's, it's very it's very specific. Like you're uh, you're like channeling <laughs> some like Chicago local radio sportscaster. Yeah, anyway. Uh, but yeah, but sports metaphors are always in Chicago accents in my mind. I don't know why that is anyway. Cubs, Bears, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but but it's but it's real, right? And this is where sports like get to get to the heart of it. And you do you got to play with the eleven guys you got on the roster, you know. Uh, and and so that's I think that's what separates us from maybe some of the other people who, like I said, unfortunately have tragically been sort of lost in the basement of the vampires cast. We've got to somehow find our way out of this. And I, you know, I just don't know what that looks like. We talk about a, a dirty break, you know, with the Democratic Party. Do you think that a dirty break? inside of DSA is is going to happen or is in some senses inevitable given that we I mean let's let's not fucking sugarcoat here I've been talk I've been lambasting people for sugarcoating things the whole episode let's not finish that way there are people in DSA who will literally fucking lay on the tracks and put their bodies on the line before the train that you're trying to you know uh uh, uh what do you do with a train you don't drive it you uh Conduct. you uh engineer it what do you how, how do you steer a train what, what do you call it? anyway the train that you're trying to operate on this on these tracks, more meta, more shady, shoddy metaphors, they will literally throw their fucking bodies on the lines to prevent you from doing this thing. That's that's the contradiction inside the organization. I'm not just being histrionic. Like that shit is fucking real. <laughs> Go walk into some of the chapters across the country right now and just raise the the specter of Philly DSA. And they'll like performatively spit on the ground before they start talking about how you guys are all Stalinists and authoritarians and, and all the rest of it. Like how, I mean, this is a lofty <laughs> question, especially to end on, but like, how do we, how do we get, get over this impasse in, in some meaningful way? Yeah. I mean, those people are less scary than Jeff Bezos um, <laughs> to me, like, yeah. you know, ultimately the left is weak we're pretty impotent (laughs) and so you know it's just part of the game that's what that's what politics is you know we just have to win oh Uh, did did you just give me like a chin up kiddo speech (laughs) you did didn't you you did i mean you guys were talking about sports but um (laughs) i i am uh i want to go on record and say that i'm anti-sports no i'm kidding but um yeah because that's the only proper left way to be obviously uh (laughs) informatively anti anti anti-sport um yeah no you i mean you're right in a sense right rub rub some fucking dirt on it and get out there and play the game you know that's more or less what you just gave me which like yeah there's definitely some truth to that yeah and i think i think also what you're you know a lot of the examples that we've kind of collectively generated in this conversation are like the online left. And my experience has been in in in-person organizing that the terrain is just really different. And, um, you know, uh, Ben Fong wrote a really funny piece uh, a while ago called Log Off. Mm. And obviously we can't do that in quarantine, but, um, you know, actually being able to talk to people in real life and doing in-person organizing and knocking doors um, is almost like a different reality than what happens on the internet. <laughs> um, and so I I think, you know, that doesn't mean that all of the, the kind of structural issues that I discuss in the piece are fictions. They certainly yeah. exist. 
Um, but they're nothing like what uh, the kind of like vicious, like pit of snakes is like on the internet. Like <laughs> yeah. um, I think we can build things. And I think that a lot of these symptoms are symptoms of the fact that the left has been totally immiserated and, and, and pushed out of politics for 40 years. Uh, so we have, you know, 40 years to, to change that. Um, we need to stop thinking in terms of electoral cycles and think about things, um, in terms of like the actual time span that it takes to organize a a strong left-based opposition. Sometimes you got to throw the first 20 games, you know, uh, in the second half of the schedule so that you can be ready to, to win the playoffs, you know. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, – what else What else you got, Ben? Uh, <laughs> about uh, – Yeah, right. No, that's, 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 that's fair. I, oh, here we go. I guess the uh, – I guess one? we're – go with the, um, the euphemism that people always use when they're talking about how bad my uh, beloved Red Wings suck right now and say we're in a rebuilding period. Yeah, we're in a rebuilding period, yeah. But I mean, just, I was, I was going to end on that, but to push back a little bit, because there are contradictions, right? Both and. Like, the, the issue, you're absolutely right, that, like, log off. Everybody log the fuck off. I wish I could. <laughs> this is, like, part of what I have to do, unfortunately. It sucks. Uh, I do anything else most days. But, like, isn't it the, also the case that we're pushed online in the absence of the tangible deliberative mechanisms that ought to be um, in place in the organization, right? That, that we end up online because of the way that the kind of organization doesn't really lend itself to like collective channels of discussion and decision-making. And of course there's like this, there's the numbers problem where you can't have 60,000 people airing their own incredibly unique and incredibly insightful ideas, which right, probably neither of the thing, those two things, unfortunately, myself included. Um, so there's that, right. But isn't it also the case that like this, the messiness that you see online are just people like desperately trying to influence this like unwieldy ship that seems to be like, you know, if it's barely seaworthy, it's like impossible to steer in any meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a, it's good to push back on that. It would be naive to say that what happens on the internet has no impact on, uh, you know, real life organizing. I guess I would say that um, it's up to people to make the Venn diagram between, I guess, like the middle of the Venn diagram really, really small between like who's online and like who's, who's actually doing organizing because we all know that there's very little productive conversation that happens there. And I actually think that our organization, like, you know, I I hate to keep tooting Philly DSA's horn, but I actually think that the work that we've done has in many ways uh, matured and developed our opposition. Like, they are much better organizers as a result of, I think, our in-person organizing. And I think that's undoubtedly a good thing. Um, the fact that they're moving, uh, you know, to in-person organizing and actually having one-on-one conversations with people moving away from online, I think um, that's the way you have to do it. And so uh, people who are really passionate about Medicare for All need to go up to people. You need to be charismatic. You need to introduce yourself. I think um, trying to limit the degree to which, um, those kind of factional debates happen on the internet, I think is something that's incumbent upon everyone who's in the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right on. Hard to argue with that. Everybody log off and go do something political. It's hard (laughs) people. I know. And look, I know it's hard. 
especially if you don't live in fucking Philadelphia. <laughs> you're like, you know, ticking on all cylinders and killing it, right? Like at all times, you know, like especially if you're in some, you know, in a place where the chapter is far less coherent or maybe kind of, you know, leaning in the opposite direction. Um, it's hard and it's never not going to be hard because we're, we're pushing against the grain. But uh, thanks so much for, for joining us on DPS for this chat. It was a long one, but um, I hope that uh, you were able to kind of clarify the arguments in your article. And I think it's really important that uh, we, we didn't spend any time on what everyone else on in the online world has been <laughs> like freaking out about with respect to this piece. And, and yeah, and that way I hope it was clarifying for people who tuned in. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Joe.